<laughs> Yay. He's back. Yippee. Good morning, friends. Great to have kids in today. Today, uh, I, I didn't even know. I, I probably just wasn't paying close enough attention to know today's kids in service day. And what a delight. And it's fun to see some of the adult faces that are often teaching classes right now get to join us today. So thank you uh, for that. Amy, thank you for your leadership. Amy's been leading kids ministry now for um, what seems like probably the quickest 10 years of your life. It's been about six months, right? Uh, six months, feels like 10 years. Uh, she's doing a great job. So a big thanks to Amy for what she's doing. Um, good, good to have uh, kids in the room. So it seems fitting then with kids in the room that let's start today in scripture uh, playing pub trivia, right? Feels like an age appropriate thing. Uh, Okay, so uh, either, either play by yourself, which is fine, you can do that, or if you want to group up uh, for the power of collective thinking, or three quick pub trivia questions today to get us started. Uh, first question, and uh, you can shout it out or raise your hand, there are no prizes, so um, there, will be, all right, there will be no awards. I have, you know what? I have a stick of gum for the winner. It's been properly warmed in my pocket, but... Um, remains, you know, largely safe. So that, that's what I have to offer you. I have teenagers and two kids in college, so that's about all I got. Okay, pub trivia. You ready? Uh, who won this year's edition of the Daytona 500? Who won this year? Yeah, don't Google it. No, look it up on your phone, Vincent. Um, <laughs> anybody know it? Oh, no, it wasn't Harvick, um, though I do, um, I'm, I don't really know NASCAR, but I, I did know that name, but it wasn't Harvick. Ricky Stenhouse Jr. was the winner of the Daytona 500. But here's a bonus, uh, bonus question on question number one. Who, name one thing, person, or organization Ricky Stenhouse Jr. thanked in his acceptance speech for the win, huh? I don't remember if he thanked God or not, but I'm going to give you a point for guessing that because that's always the right answer in church. Anybody else want to take any guesses? Because um, you know, I mean, you, even if you're not in NASCAR, you know, like he thanked his sponsors. You know, he thanked the team owner. Mike Kelly is the team owner, for those who were just really curious who owns the team. There you have it, right? Aren't you glad I shared that? Um, he, he goes on to thank a whole list of different people that made it possible. Uh, okay, question number two. Um, and uh, you know who you are. I can't answer this because you already answered it earlier. Um, who won the Academy Award this year for Best Actress? It was for a movie called Everything Everywhere All at Once. Anybody know? Michelle Yeoh. Michelle Yeoh. That is correct, ma'am. Michelle Yeoh won the Academy Award. Again, an acceptance speech. Anybody want to take any guesses as to who she thanked? She thanked the studio. That, you get a bonus point for that. Who else did she thank? Yep, her mom. She, you remember the speech. It was a whole thing about her mom. Did you just pull that out of the air? You do. I just know. So you definitely want to get Greggy on your pub trivia team. Yeah, that's right. The big thing, she did thank the studio and cast and crew and all that, but she, uh, she largely thanked her mom and um, told a story of her standing on the shoulders of her mom, uh, figuratively, not um, literally, and um, said, I'm bringing this back to Malaysia for you, mom. This is for you. Um, this kind of thing. Okay, last one. Ready for it? Um, you, are you all keeping count of your yeah. score? Okay, good. Excellent. You got, yeah, that point counted. Okay. Uh, all right. Who holds the record for the fastest marathon in history? It was under two hours. Just broke it like two years ago. Aaron Not Aaron Streeter. He wishes. 
He wishes. Anybody know? Huh? Kipchoge. Yep. Eliud Kipchoge. I'm sure I'm pronouncing it wrong too, but I think that's pretty close to right. Eliud Kipchoge ran a sub to our marathon. And uh, the picture, uh, throw it up there if you would, Amanda, the picture of him finishing, you get this picture of him finishing 159.40. Now, to, to put that in context, friends, to run a 159.40 for 26.2 miles would be about the equivalent to a, a, a moderately fit human sprinting, like your sprint, for 26.2 miles. So just think, you know, if you're moderately in decent health, think about your sprint and then running that pace. Uh, I forget exactly, um, but it's like a sub, it's like a 420 mile or something like that, 420-ish. So four minute, 20 mile for 26.2 miles. Now here's the interesting thing. Um, even if you're aware of who he is and, and you see the picture of him crossing the line, him celebrating, I think this next photo is really telling. This is from 200 meters from the line. And this is how he did it. Uh, and just, I want you to imagine for a minute all the different pieces, because it had never been done before. Nike came together for over a year and developed a brand new shoe for this. It has a carbon sole that made him go, you know, that little bit faster. Uh, he had a pace car. You see that little green light, like laser beams? They, it, the car actually drove the exact pace he had to go to be under two hours. And they built this laser beam square that he needed to run in that even had factored in the corners and turns to cut the distance the quickest. And he had to stay in that green square to remain on time. Uh, then he has all these pacers around him. He's the guy in the white tank top. And all the pacers who ran around him would rotate in and out because nobody could run that pace with him the whole way to envelop him on pace and to give him not, not just the emotional support to do it, but also the drafting capability, the pacing, they fed it, all this stuff. Get this picture. Sure, Elliot Kipchoge holds the record, but you recognize what a team it took. In all of these cases, and the myriad of more, we get this picture that life and success and fruit and joy doesn't happen alone. Nobody will ever lay on their deathbed and be asked the question, tell us about the best thing about your life, and them say, pretty much all the things I did all by myself. Um, really, my aloneness was the best. No. That doesn't, you know, especially parents, especially those of you with little ones, I, I get it. You, a little alone time would just feel like a gift from the Lord. But nobody finishes their life and says, how did you get to the success and the fruit and the joy that you had in life? And people say, well, by doing everything by myself and making sure that I never had outside voices in my life. No. We, we get to the end of our life or even get to the middle of our life. And you say, what, what are the best things about your life? And you're going to say your family the closest friends, the people around you. And of course, this is true of the life with Christ as well. It's often viewed by outsiders, this Christian life, as this very individual thing, this singular thing, this collection of things I believe, collection of things you believe. Or e even better thought of, not that we don't believe things individually, of course we do, but... Uh, 
also thought about the way in which I'm transforming. We think about the Christian life, and I, I, I used to be like this, but now I'm, I'm like this, and Jesus, the likeness of Christ is sort of out there, but I'm moving in that direction. Or, or even think about it of your mission in life and fulfilling your God-given mission for your life to announce the goodness of God and his kingdom's activity. It may be seen as a thing that you do, but you and I both know that in all of those cases, both the things that we believe, the ways in which we're becoming shaped like Christ and the life on mission of service, all of that is done in community. So this process of believing, of transforming, of serving are no more an individual effort than winning that Academy Award for Michelle Yeoh or running that sub-two-hour marathon by Kipchoge. We do these things in team. The Christian life may be full-contact sport, but it is a team sport as well. Christianity is done in team. The Apostle John writes in 1 John 2, Dear friends, I am not writing a new commandment for you. Rather, it's an old one that has been from the very beginning. The old commandment to love one another. Like this idea of doing the Christian life is about together. And the demonstration of our Christian togetherness is love. It's the same message you heard before, he says at the end of verse 7. Yet it is also new. Jesus lived this, the truth of this commandment, and you are also living it. For the darkness is disappearing, and the true light has already come. It is in the one anothering that the Christian way is formed in us. I want to dive into Ephesians chapter 4 today, and I want to look at one particular aspect of our togetherness, of our one anotherness, of our unity together in the body and how that is shaped in us. Uh, go to Ephesians chapter 4 if you would, and if you want to scan the QR code to grab all the notes, uh, go that way. If you want to use a printed copy of the scriptures, do that as well. But as you turn there, let me pray. Father in heaven, you have uh, made us in your image to be like you, and you see us and you say that we're very good. And as we live in this world after innocence was lost and the fall was had, we have the great joy to partner with you in your redemption of all of creation, to draw everything back in perfect unity and community with you. So uh, may these insights from your scripture today that are from you uh, land on our hearts and spur us on to love and good deeds, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Ephesians 4, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope, that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, 
It says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. I guess maybe the first question as we begin to explore what God may be saying to us here in this text today is, uh, what is the calling we have received? He talks about that in those very early verses, you know, the calling to which we have received. Well, what is that calling? And I think so often we with American eyes, even just simply Western eyes, but, but certainly with American eyes, we think about the calling to which we were called and most of us immediately think about our personal calling, me, my thing. Which, yes, you have an individual calling, but he's writing a letter not to a specific person, but to an entire church. So the letter is for us as a church. Our calling as a church, as a people together, this calling. And certainly it has to do with patience and gentleness and love and, and these things that he mentions here. And it certainly involves those list of things, but there's a demonstration of something even bigger going on here, friends. For the answer, we need to take a look back to chapter 1, a little bit of Ephesians. Ephesians 1. Uh, I'm just going to bounce back real fast. Uh, you don't need to turn there unless you really want to, Ephesians 1 chapter, uh, sorry, 1 verse 3. All praise to God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and he chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault. God decided in advance, and, and this really key language and description and picture he gives to adopt us into his own family. To adopt us into his family. This is the picture of walking with Christ. This is the picture of the life of Christianity. It is a life where we are adopted, grafted into a family. And I think the point here is pretty clear and simple, and the reminder, the call, the conviction of Christ is that we be drawn into unity. Why in the world would we talk about unity unless there's a temptation to not have unity? Why would there be this strong thing to act in love and to bear with one another and to be patient and to practice humility if there wasn't also a temptation to push against that? And I probably don't have to yammer on about it too far to remind us, to draw up reminders for us of the various ways and times where you've experienced disunity in family. How many of you have ever sat at a dinner table with family when two members of the family were clearly fighting? And everybody sits there awkwardly, right? Okay, so how was your day? 
and you know, you just, you dance around it, and everybody can feel it in the room. You don't even necessarily need to know what the argument is, but you can feel it. In my place of work, as, as you know, I get to work for a beautiful and wonderful Christian organization, and I serve on our executive team, and there are times where there's conflicts on the executive team. Amazing, right? Like Christians have conflict. What do, what do you know? And uh, sometimes the joke, and most of our meetings are held over Zoom, and so often the joke will be if there's tension in the room, you say, is mom and dad fighting? Um, are mom and dad fighting? And, you know, they, okay, well, what, what's going on? It's like you can even feel it across a screen at times. That terrible feeling where you hear two siblings, young or old, shouting at each other. Whether you're the other sibling or a parent, you just you feel that tension. And, and what lies ahead here, friends, may seem like a bit of a backwards way to commit ourselves to unity, but I think it may be the only practical way. Because when we think about unity, it, it can feel like this sort of ethereal thing out there. Oh, unity, I should probably have that. What does that even mean? What, like, what does unity even mean? Uh, and, and maybe a little hindsight back to 2020 would help us a little bit, especially us as a church. Uh, we're all kind of sick of talking about a pandemic and certainly sick about talking about COVID, but that season of time for us as a church, guys, us, I don't mean like big C church, I, don't, I mean us, is a really helpful sort of flag in the ground for us to look back to, uh, both as a measurement tool for how, who we are becoming as a church and also as a, as a learning moment, both for us individuals and us as a collective body. Some of you may not know this. I think most of you probably do, but I think it's uh, helpful to revisit at least a little bit uh, that 2020 was a time of the greatest leadership division we have ever experienced in our church. Almost 15 years together since we started meeting in a living room. And quite frankly, I don't know that we ever in those 15 years had any division among our leadership until then. And boy, what did we save up and spend it all that year. I mean, there's probably some psychology there behind all that, but uh, the truth remains. Your leaders were sharply divided. There were 8, 12, 15 of us sitting around a table a lot of times where there were some in the room who felt we shouldn't be meeting and some in the room who felt we were in sin if we didn't meet and some in the room who felt like we should all be masked up, and some in the room who felt like that was ridiculous and we shouldn't, some in the room who felt like we should break the rules and meet, and some who felt like we shouldn't. And the, the, the divisions were, were very serious and, and wide and deep. And we held our opinions strongly. And everybody had a Bible verse to prove how right they were, as is sort of the case with humans, right? Especially Christians. And I think the... Uh, one of the more painful aspects to that were when times would come either in a conversation or in, in a larger kind of more global way, if you will, when people just tapped out and just left the conversation, whether it was just in a moment or in general. And we all did it. I have repented a fair bit for my misbehavior during that season to friends individually and corporately. I'm not real proud of some things. My, my own false self came out in a lot of different ways during that year. Fear began to drive conversations and, 
And all this stuff was going on, and it was real. But I'm really proud of our leadership because through that year, we hung in there. We stuck with it. We kept grinding stuff out. We kept having the discussions. And we didn't take as many cheap shots as we could have. There were some cheap shots taken, uh, mostly by me, uh, some by you. But we hung in there together, and we fought it out. And I'm proud that we stayed together. And we grew deeply as a church leadership through that time. And, and it's a good thing. It's a good thing that we stayed after it. And we, we fought for this body of Christ and the mission that we have in the city and in our world because we're going to need that kind of unity. You see, unity doesn't mean agreement. Unity doesn't mean, hey, okay, here's a decision we all have to come to and we all have to love the decision. Unity means we come to it and we go, we think this is what God's up to together. And I don't like it. Well, I don't like it either. Well, I really don't like it. Okay, but we feel like this is what God's up to together, and we're going to chase after that together. And then the good news about that is if we get it wrong, which we do all the time, we got it wrong together. And we learn from that together. Why do we look back at that, Stu? Uh, Well, for this reason. Because I'm pretty confident, friends, that you and me are not going to get a perfect understanding of God's heart on how to love the LGBTQ plus community if we come to all of our conclusions on our own. Because your conclusions aren't that great. <laughs> and my conclusions are definitely not that great. But if we get together with the scriptures in our hand and we humbly submit ourselves to one another and we say, we want to we love this part of the community that is pretty convinced we hate them. How do we do this together? How do we learn how to love people together? I don't think that we're going to make spirit-led decisions in the voting booth this November if we make all of our decisions on our own. I think we're going to have to sit down with a friend who sees things differently and say, listen, I... I'm holding the scriptures here in my hand. I want to get this right because this matters. And yeah, maybe sometimes it's a lesser of two evils. And and yeah, maybe sometimes both answers are right. Sure, all that. But I, I submit myself to you, my friend, who sees this issue differently than me. Will you help me understand how you see this in the scriptures and, and how you've come to your conclusion on the issue? Because boy, it seems really clear to me and I'm way over here. So uh, would you just share with me your wisdom? That's like some radical stuff, right? Is that scary to anybody else? I mean, one, because we have to expose our own position, and we may even have to expose how we came to our position, but, but it, it's also scary because, well, what, what if they think less of me, or what if it turns into a fight, or what? Well, I don't mean to be trite, friends, but we have a name for this. You know what the name is? Christianity. That's what we do. That's, that's what shows us to be different, friends. They will know you are Christians by your right decisions. No. They will know you are Christians by your love for one another. There is no greater love than this, than a brother or sister who would lay down their life for a friend. I I don't just lay down my position on the issue or my opinion. I lay down my life for you. Now help me understand how you came there. And let's get God's heart on this thing together. 
It's in these difficult discussions that we not only come to a a better and a more Christ-centered conclusion, but far more importantly than the conclusion, and and I really do mean that, we practice in real time the call to live with one another in love, in patience, in kindness, goodness. We're faced in those conversations with our own tendencies to use power or coercion or manipulation or pouting or martyrdom or whatever. Those are just my favorites, so I don't know what yours are, but we're confronted with our tendency to use those tools of this twisted world to get our way. And we don't usually have to face that if we just make a decision on our own. Go read an article on your favorite website. We sit down with one another, and you begin the conversation, and you're asking questions, and then, oh, man, did, did, I, just power, did I just talk over the top of you? Yeah, you, you kind of did. I was trying to fit. Oh, I, I'm sorry. Do, do I do that? Yes, do. You kind of do that. Oh. Okay. See, in that moment, the issue no longer is the issue. In that moment, we're learning how to be together with one another, across a table with another human created in the image of God, whom he loves. scriptures here and and many other places have writings to the church, to us, with the underlying assumption that if we are actually going to live out the Jesus way together, unity will take work. Patience will be essential. Peace will be easy to forget. And we exchange peace for rightness or getting my way or not losing my freedom. You see, following Jesus individually requires difficult conversations collectively. I've said it before, and I know it's a little uh, provocative, but I, it's intended that way. A purely individualized Christianity is Buddhism with Jesus as your mascot. I hate that, Stu. I know, I kind of do too. That's why I keep saying it. A purely individualized Christianity is Buddhism with Jesus as your mascot. Christianity doesn't even exist outside of community. Even Jesus <laughs> was in community, right? It's like he, at 13 years old or whatever he was, he's young, he walks into the temple and then he, he stays behind and the community looks around and goes, oh my goodness, where's Jesus? Where'd he go? It's like we can't move forward without, we, we gotta be together. Immediately when he begins his ministry, what does he do? He grabs a gang of misfits to run with him, right? He says, don't leave my side. They go, well, I just got to go take care of a few things, Jesus. First, he's like, no, 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 let's be together. Following Jesus individually requires difficult conversations collectively. You see, unearthing the way of Christ is not always simple because we live in really complicated times with complex issues that don't have easy answers. The tweetable answers that the powers of this world use to make their conclusions do not work in the kingdom. And usually the process of unearthing God's heart on any issue requires tilling the soil of our own souls. And we're just not that good at tilling our own soil. 
I need you to till my soil, and I need to till yours. And we, you know, but hey, is that position on that thing, is that coming from this thing? And you're like, oh, yeah, maybe. maybe. Hmm, that's interesting. Maybe that is what's at play here, right? When I first put pen to paper, if you will, on some of these thoughts early, early this week, I kept thinking, man, I just hate this. I don't like this at all. I don't want my perspective to change. But then I, God reminded me of Paul's words to the church in Rome in chapter 12, verse 2, where he says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person, changing the way you think. Then you'll learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. I don't think I have to remind you that the way of the world in our day is pretty clear. And the way of the world is only read articles that affirm what you already believe. Right? Only watch the news station that says things that you like. Unless you flip to the other news station just long enough to scream at the TV uh, to further deepen your confirmation bias. Right? And, And for goodness sake, don't ever have a conversation with anybody who sees an issue differently than you and talk about that issue, because that can only be ugly. But that's just simply not the way of Jesus. That's just simply not the way of Jesus. We sit down with friends, and we go, hey, um, so yeah, I saw this thing in the news this week. What, what do you think about all that? And you know the feeling. You clam up, and you go, oh, how do I dance around this? Oh, I got to get out of it. What if we just said, well, you know, I haven't thought about it a lot, or maybe I have thought about it a lot. Here's, here's what I think about it, but I wonder if, if that's good. What do you think about it? And we just do this real, just open-handed back and forth, just conversation together. Don't let me uh, push, though, too hard here on the changing our mind stuff. Uh, I think that's valuable. I think that's important. I think that there's a a number of things in life where we would probably be wise to change our mind on some things. But the main point here, friends, is to do life together. The main point is togetherness. The the main idea, the main point, the, the thrust here, the joy here is that I would never make any decision in my life or my family's life without a whole mess of you all weighing in on it hey, we're thinking about buying a new car, and you know, they're expensive, and it's going to mean this, that. What do you guys think about that? Well, let's talk about it. I mean, imagine what that would be like. And, and in some various pockets around our church, especially in our leadership team, that kind of thing is happening. We're searching for new jobs at times and going, hey, I'm really struggling at work, and here's what I'm thinking, and, and we're, we're processing through that together. I've said it before. I'll say it again. The best business coach, life coach, career coach you could get for your particular career is sitting in this room right now. Not because they get your career or your field of expertise, because they get you. And they love Jesus. What better wisdom in the world could you have than somebody who gets you, knows you, and loves Jesus? The main point is togetherness. So let's... uh, in the closing minute or two here, let me just offer a few, I don't know if it's tips, it feels a little seminar-ish, but skills, because I'd hate for this to just be this thing up in the air, but I'd love for us to put this to practice. 
Because here's the thing. When we avoid one another and we avoid having difficult conversations about important issues, what we're ultimately doing there, very unintentionally. So I don't think anybody here is like, you know, looking to harm each other. But what happens inadvertently is we begin to strip each other of our imago day. Because you've been created in the image of God and he's given you life experience and insight and expertise and knowledge on things. And if I don't go to you and explore how you came to a conclusion, I say to you, you're not human to me. I don't need your input. But God has made us to be together. I don't want to beat that horse too dead, but I, I want to be sure we get what's happening there. That the tendency of this world is to only talk to people who agree with us and in that process, they don't matter as a human. All that matters is that they're agreement with us. But if we sit down with somebody who we might not agree with, we have to actually deal with them as a human being. How in the world could you take that position on this social or theological issue when, here's the language, it's clear in the Bible that this is what's right. And then the person says, well, but is it so clear? Can we talk about that? So a couple, couple pieces here, a couple tips. Uh, one, uh, never ambush. One, just don't ambush each other. Just come up to your friend and say, um, hey, uh, come in to vote here, and I, and I know I'm going to get in some dicey water here, friends, so just give me lots of grace. But I'm coming up on an election here, um, and the issue of abortion is going to be on the election. Uh, and in my mind, it's really clear this way. But in your mind, it seems that maybe it's not so clear this way. Would you mind just sitting down with me and talking to me about your views on pro-life or pro-choice? Show of hands, who's scared of that conversation? Right? Does that conversation matter, though? Like, sh shouldn't, shouldn't the church lead the way in that thinking? Shouldn't the church be the voice of hope and goodness in the world on an incredibly complicated issue? that isn't as simple as the politicians make it out to be in their six-line tweets? Shouldn't we be the voice? But that means we have to sit down and work some of this stuff out, and we're not all going to agree. But it's going to help us, right? So don't ambush each other. Sit, go up to somebody and say, hey, um, I know your field of study, I know your field of expertise, and I'm wondering, you may have a different perspective on the upcoming election. I'm thinking I'm going to vote this way on this particular presidential candidate. Um, it seems maybe you don't feel so strongly. Could, could we talk about that? See, what, what's happened in religious circles for so long was in my parents' generation, the guy up here, me, stood up here and told all of you how to vote. How many of you have ever experienced that, right? Remember the voter guides in churches? Remember they? That actually happened, guys. I mean... For the Gen Zs, you might not, and praise God, you don't remember this, but you used to walk out of church before the election with a voter guide, and it literally told you how to vote. Here's how Christians vote on this issue. And man, my mom, she, I love you, mama. She's like this bohemian kind of Jesus freaky person. She'd tell me what to do. She'd throw the thing away. And it was just like, like we were formed by that. Like, no, that's, that's actually not how we come to God's conclusions. We don't just have somebody hand us a quarter sheet voter guide. But here's the problem. Then my generation took over leadership, and what, how did we respond? We're never going to talk about politics. We don't address it, ever. Well, how is that helpful, guys? We're supposed to be announcing the kingdom of God. 
One would think that the empire of this world would matter. But it's not going to happen from this stage. That I promise you. So if you're freaking out right now, going, oh, geez, we're going to become one of those. No, 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 no. This is not the place for that conversation. Because I have a microphone and lights on me and that all of, there's a complete injustice of power there. But what if we sat down over a coffee and said, hey, the election's coming up. What stuff should I be paying attention to in your mind? So just don't ambush each other, but have the hard conversations. Two, uh, you can see it up there, I'm sure, already. Uh, own your bias. Just walk into the conversation knowing your bias. And don't try to, um, I'm trying to think of an appropriate word, age-appropriate word. Um, don't, don't fib to me or your friend about your bias. Like, right? Be adult enough to know your bias. And go, yeah, I'm pretty locked in on this issue. I'm probably not going to move on this one. Um, so just you got to know, I'm pretty biased there. Okay, cool, well, let's talk, right? So own your bias. And then three, just ask lots of questions. Big speeches don't usually work when you're talking to a friend. Just ask questions. Oh, tell me how you came to that conclusion. That's it. How, so, wow. Tell me about your life. These conversations matter, friends. Because this is how we get unity. This is how we protect unity. Just becoming a church family who never talks about anything important because of how hard the pandemic was for us is not Christian unity. That's playing nice. That's like the shopping mall. That's like your clerk at the grocery store. You have a four-minute exchange with them once a week, and they, they you know, ring in your lettuce, and you walk away, but you don't have a real conversation. That's not the church. That's not the church. The church, we work this stuff out, and that's why Paul's always talking about unity, because he knows, hey, if you're actually going to be the church, unity's going to be tough. Unity's going to be tough. Paul writes, then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Spirit, may we increasingly become the kinds of people and the kind of church that does not shy away from tough conversations but enters into them with grace and patience and goodness because your perspective matters in a world that is so lost. And you've made your perspective available to us, but we will need each other to come to it. So give us wisdom, give us courage, and give us perseverance, because the first conversations might not go good. But may we stay at it. And may unity in the body be demonstrated for our city, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.